Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Nima Gardita, co-founder, president, and CTO of Peermill on the topic of optimizing creative output to achieve company objectives. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. My guest today is Nima Gardita, who's the co-founder, president, and CTO of Peermill. Welcome, Nima. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, maybe we could start with uh, uh, in, in introduction here. I, I should, I guess, I should start with uh, what we're talking about. We're talking about optimizing creative production to achieve company objectives. I think that pretty much describes uh, most of my career is, is doing on the creative side okay. is creating those marketing assets to help build up the company profile and to market the company. Maybe we start with your background and over, uh, overview of Peermill, what you guys focus on. For sure. Yeah, so Peermill is a performance marketing agency. We're focused mostly on paid search and paid social. Um, if you're not familiar with that vernacular, paid search being sort of all of Google's ecosystem, Bing and Microsoft ads, and then social being sort of meta, TikTok, Snap, uh, LinkedIn, um, and all those channels where there's a component. <clears throat> and performance marketing generally cares for making sure that the input that we are putting into these um, marketing initiatives has a certain level of output. So if I'm spending a dollar on a LinkedIn ad, I would like to ideally make somewhere between three to five dollars back yeah. with a reasonable time frame. Um, and so we do media buying, creative production, landing page optimization, and attribution modeling. Uh, and then the creative space, we do our own production. We get into sort of the work that goes behind that and the process we use. Uh, but that's sort of like a quick intro to Paramel and what we do. So that's like, so you guys are a, a full agency where you've got the creative capability to, yeah, that, that's uh, having, uh, you know, been a small independent and working with, have worked with a number of small agencies and farmed pieces out. And it's, it's always nice when you can go to a shop and they've got the entire team and can kind of do all those things. Yeah. And it's like a philosophical sort of choice for us. In the beginning to get here, it was brutal. I, I tell you that it's very hard to do it because we didn't have the budget. Yeah. Um, and we had to figure out how to do all this production. But it, the choice was that we felt that in order to do the performance marketing part of the job well, we had to also think of creative as one of the important levers, uh, which is the general topic of discussion today anyway. Um, and we wanted, wanted to have sort of a lot of control over, over that part. Um, and now we're in full production team and I'm literally sitting in our studio recording this today with you. Um, and so it's, it's all become possible. And that's actually the biggest part of our organization is the creative production team uh, because a lot of these ad channels have moved further and further into using creative actually as a, as a targeting lever, as an input into their machine learning targeting system. Um, where when we started, that was not the case. And we've only been around, been around for about four and a half years or so, but the last two two years particularly have just kind of fundamentally shifted toward um, creative being sort of the most important uh, 
um, part of this equation of the four things that we do. Number one, most important part is creative these days and um, how you wield the, the power of production in order to get the right outputs out of these campaigns and um, what you want from the adspend that you're, you're deploying. So, so how, so we've used the word a couple of times, talked about creative, maybe for those we can fill them in. So how do you define the role of creative production and specifically around achieving, you know, a company's objectives? What is that? How do you define that? Yeah. So you want to be basically dividing up creative production or how you think about creative into three separate areas, right? So one is who am I going after? And so what, and just a level set, when we're talking about creative, it's all the content inside of an ad. So let's say you're on LinkedIn and you're trying to target potential uh, marketing qualified leads or sales qualified leads out there for yourself. And um, you want to put an ad together where someone sees this ad and they click on it and maybe request a demo, let's say. <clears throat> and so all the pieces of content around this ad should be thought of as the part of the creative. So the copy on top of the Ad or the below of it, the, the image or video that's in there. So that, that's what we're talking about when we talk about creative. And so you want to be dividing into sort of three aspects. One is like, who is the overall audience? Um, and what is the action we want from this audience um, when they see this ad? So let's say I'm going after, for us, like an MQL definition for Paramount is uh, you are a company that's raised at least a series B and up. You're spending in, let's say, $200,000 of ad spend. and you are the CMO or the CEO in that company, and that's sort of like our audience. And the action we want you to take most of the time is uh, sign up for one of our newsletters or uh, our webinars, right? So that's like stage one. Stage two is, okay, how can I then tell a good story such that I, I get someone's attention um, and get them to perform the action? And so that's the conceptualization part. You come up with a bunch of ideas, and there is a component that I'll get to in this how you can use past data to do this, but you come up with a bunch of ideas and concepts, and then there is a sort of production aspect of it. After you have the concept, you have to go out, find the actors or the illustrators or the motion designers or the copywriters or the art directors and so on to put the ad together, produce it, and then run it. So it turns out the last part, even though there is a lot of craft behind it, uh, should be mostly led by the first two parts. Uh, and historically in marketing, it was the exact opposite. Uh, a lot of the production ideas were created in isolation of the action uh, that needed to be taken or the data behind what is possible in the market and uh, things were produced. Where now we wanna do it the other way around. And the most important part isn't that, hey, maybe you end up with better content. Actually, you might end up with content that you and I will look at and say, well, that seems very simple, but the, input of this content into the app network tends to be a very important part of the process mm -hmm. because Facebook and Google and LinkedIn, all of these networks have now built machine learning models based on the input that you're putting in there. Uh, so the copy you put in there, the video, the image, they vectorize this, this information and use it as an input to get a sense of who is likely in their network to click on this app. And so the input is very important as part of the overall process of making sure your ads work. So that's why those first two parts are incredibly important and you want them to be data-driven in that you're putting out ideas 
you learn from those ideas over time and you use the learnings in order to get better and better at producing content that not only is performing well in the sense that people are clicking on it and so on, but also is a very good input to the ad network to stop target the overall massive audience of people they have in their network that is likely to buy your product or watch your webinar or mm -hmm. sign up uh, for a demo request. You know, my, my next question, you kind of just, you know, answered part of it about is, you know, how much is the landscape of creative production, you know, evolved in this digital age, you know, uh, especially we have these multimedia platforms, the intelligence that's behind the, the systems, you kind of just described that where you're more teaching the, the platforms, I don't know how much you know, I, I'm not doing the, I'm not in the marketing team. Funny. I'm a marketing guy, but I'm in a different role. I'm in, uh, over on the channel side in my day job, um, but work very closely with the marketing team. Um, been in marketing roles. I've been a chief marketing officer. Um, but just the way that we used to go and create the content, test that out. I mean, that's evolved and changed where, you know, we, we, we can get a lot of data back from the systems about what, can will what will be effective or not yeah it's an interesting world now basically i would say there is two major shifts one is that generally speaking all of these ad networks have gone towards um probabilistic targeting right and then major shift started if you remember the cambridge analytica sort of like debacle yep. of people were upset about their privacy being uh, eroded in these systems so the solution basically from the ad industry was that, okay, well, we're not going to provide marketers with very explicit targeting options anymore because that seems to uh, not be okay with the, with the citizenry. What we're going to do is instead fully create these sort of like buckets of users based on behavior and based on what they are doing on the, with the ads and on the sites that we are tracking um, such that the same sort of like targeting is available, but not explicitly and rather implicitly. And so the inputs are no longer, hey, can I get uh, potentially uh, women in their mid-30s that are living in X, Y, and Z and are maybe looking for baby products? That's like too, too targeted of an explicit uh, <clears throat> way to, to ask an ad network to target for you. What you can do instead and, is to input ads that are clearly going after um, that demographic, demographic, and then also send them data back. Uh, whenever they send users or click people that are clicking on the ads that fall within the demogra demographic that you want. So the events and the signals you send back become this feedback loop where they send out a bunch of test traffic at first. You send them signals back, and you're like, well, that wasn't good, that was good, that wasn't good. They use the feedback loop to get better and better and better at targeting the right folks in their overall network that become your customers. Hmm. And you still have some targeting capabilities like geolocation and, and some interest targeting. Uh, but the, when, when you figure this stuff out, we have B2B clients where they're on meta. Let's say they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on meta. The targeting, the, the part where you can explicitly pick things, is all of the United States. Of course, they're a B2B company. Their target is not all of the United States, but we are relying fully on the creative and the events that we pass back as the targeting levers and no longer the explicit targeting level levers mm -hmm. because that's how good these feedback systems have become. Meta explicitly is just fantastic at it. Google's pretty good. LinkedIn's getting better. Um, 
but that's where the industry is shifting is basically a uh, privacy friendly way of having very high relevant high, high relevance ads shown to user uh, this is how this is how they solved it basically with a lot of machine learning uh, it's quite interesting but they the tough part there is now I have to think about the first five seconds of my video for instance not only speaking to the human that's going to watch it but also speaking to some machine learning algorithm that consumes it in order to figure out who's going to see this ad who's likely to actually click on it so it becomes yeah. like a a part of the process and a uh, almost audience you're you're solving for. The audience just happens to be artificial in this sense. So with the with this shift, I mean, what what are the how the what what are the new challenges? I mean, what where where do companies struggle when they're trying to optimize like what content to create, how to optimize their strategies for going after these customers? Yeah, so you know, we we have a solution for this this area, but the main big problem basically it's like somewhat of a black box. I can't mm -hmm. like feed things to the ML algorithm and ask it, hey, is this like the right target people? Um, is this going to target the right people? Do you think they're going to like convert and so on? So you really have to uh, be spending money on ideas in order to first learn. And then the second problem is that because it's all machine learning based, you are not getting very clear signals, and you have to try to isolate in a way where when you do spend money on an idea, um, you can walk away with real learning. You can walk away with at least a, well, this is not going to work or a, this is going to work and we can put more money behind it. And so what we do, uh, we think of it as like a, we internally call it the evolutionary model where we try to kind of get the best ideas to survive through a iterative process such that the good ones continue getting more and more spent and the bad ones get pulled out of the system. Mm -hmm. um, and we, generally speaking, try to isolate the test as much as possible. Uh, and isolation is an interesting problem because, again, it's all ML-based. When you put two ads beside each other in the same campaign, they inherently modify the targeting of that campaign. And so we try to isolate them in that we have them separate campaigns uh, with separate ad sets, which is another grouping level uh, in, in, let's say, Meta or TikTok or LinkedIn. And they're called ad groups, but the idea is basically to separate these ads as much as possible, put a uh, equal amount of budget behind them, mm -hmm. uh, and let them run through at least a week or two, and then look at the data and say, okay, well, we let, let's say tried out ten different concepts. Two of them did better than the benchmark ads that we have in the in the in the account, um, and then so we're going to promote them and spend more money on them. And the ads that get promoted, we then ask, why is it that it, it works? What can we do to improve it? Uh, was it the hook? Was it the cinematography? The value prop we used? Was it that the CFO was more interested in this versus the CEO was more interested in this? Like, what types of leads did they bring? So then we sort of dig in to try to figure out uh, what works. And over time, this process ends up producing these sort of like interesting formulaic production paths. Like I can tell you that for some of our clients, what the exact first three seconds to five seconds they feel looks like, what they following 10 seconds need to mention, what sorts of actors work well with parts of the um, population that they're going after and so on. Mm -hmm. That's how you end up producing uh, uh, scaling up accounts. When you have these formulas that work, you just produce a lot of those and then you're able to scale up your account and then you constantly still look for new, new formulas and so on. That's the process we use. Other companies have different approaches. 
but the biggest problem is just the big black box. Um, and, and so you have to sort of like really play the game of pouring money in, getting data out, using it to then iterate and get better. In your experience, I mean, because I, I, I just, again, my personal experience is one of the major problems is when you go and you ask your executive team, like, what are your objectives? you know, selling more of whatever, like this, that's not like, that's not a, a good answer to that. Like, how much do you have to work with your clients to really understand the objectives? Cause that is going to um, help campaigns kind of stand out, you know, uh, you know, so, I mean, how much do you have to work with the client on defining uh, the, their actual objectives, what they're actually trying to uh, achieve the outcomes of their of their campaigns? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It really depends on the scale of the company and their, <clears throat> let's say, place in what I call the demand curve, right? So if they're an early stage company such that their product is so new um, or they are such a small company that the market is massive and there are people who are well within the part of the demand curve that they're immediately ready to buy it, it's a very easy conversation to have because they're, let's say, the sub thousand customers and there is, the market is 100,000 potential customers, there is enough people out there to start getting results um, that are focused on just revenue, mm -hmm. right? Um, in comparison to, let's say, a much bigger client, um, like Autodesk, public company, been around for 20 years, and the market is fully saturated, and everyone knows about them, and so on, the question becomes very different. And the answer almost is always, is the spend even worth it? And so there is a totally different process to go through there. Uh, there is there's some interesting math now called incrementality math. You can try to use it to get a sense of uh, is this spend worth it? And, and the way you usually do that is some form of a isolated test where you turn things on and off in different geographies of the same country um, and get a sense of, well, if I fully turn this down to zero, how come, what was my sort of baseline conversion in comparison to a state where it was at 100%, and then you do some differential uh, analysis and get a sense of, okay, well, it seems like when I go at 100%, I actually get like a 20% bump. So 20% of my asset is incremental, but the rest of it is not. So then how do I play with that number? Uh, it's an actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, it's hard for some marketers to wrap their heads around that because it's way more technical and data science-based than uh, maybe you were taught in school or have really spent the last decade working on stuff, but it's, um, it's a way to try to judge the performance. But ultimately, we care about revenue with performance marketing. Uh, and so that means we want $1 to equal a lot more at the end. Um, and so uh, we do some work on calculating that. Um, and the general field is called attribution modeling or incrementality marketing, uh, um, incrementality testing and, and marketing mix modeling is the two sort of general areas where you focus on, on that problem space, but uh, we try to get to a, a pretty clear understanding and then have the same numbers we're looking at both on our side and our, uh, internally in the company. So, so then we can uh, make decisions uh, with the same information. Yeah. And so when we're, there's like debate, we should be anchored in the same data. What, one of the hardest things that I've also seen is that, it, you know, defining whether a creative asset is actually is it's working and what that actually means. And, one of the, the, the conversations that I've had a number of times, it said, it's like, well, uh, uh, well, let me back up and say that 
a lot of people don't understand the volume of content that needs to be creative. There's a creative content. So content, images, headlines, all the different assets or artifacts that are created to fill in a campaign. Um, I've worked with a lot of companies that have spent a lot of time to go through and, and map out content against the, the customer journey. And so the, the danger is that throwing out creative assets because it's like, hey, well, this is not working like other aspects. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But that fills this step within the journey. You throw it out, we got nothing there. Yeah, we're, these other pieces are performing higher, but we still have to have an answer for this phase of that, of that customer journey. I don't know if you, if that, again, if you, how do you look at and balance, um, you know, what's working or needs adjustment um, to align with the objectives versus making sure that you have that customer journey mapped out? Yeah, that's a really good uh, prompt there. So, uh, you know, there's a couple of points that came up as you, as you asked that. So one is that, especially for B2B, sales cycles are very long, right? So um, the percentage of the population that I can target at any given point that's ready to hop on a demo call with a salesperson is very small. Um, and probably I'll saturate it within the first few weeks of running ads spend. Um, so you're inherently going to have to build some strategy such that you warm up the audience, make sure they remember you, such that when they're in market for what, what you're selling, um, they remember you and then they book a demo call. So what we do is we create these sort of like um, abstractions on our end when we think about this, right? So we'll say like uh, maybe this setup ads is for top of funnel and their goal is to increase the total population of the marketers that knows about our product. Uh, these sets of ads are for mid funnel and their goal is to get the customer to officially engage with our brand. And so that might mean downloading an ebook or reading a blog post or um, joining a webinar and so on, whatever uh, other life cycle work that the team's doing. And then the last piece is sort of bottom of the funnel. Like we expect these people to eventually convert to become customers. So these are sets of ads that we want to show them. They're a lot more value prop based and so on. So um, we do that, but they all should have uh, in our, our opinion, but we're very much performance marketers. So they all should have very clear goals and very clear lines in the sand for performance, either in terms of cost per uh, click or cost per view blog post and so on, um, that ultimately end up in some financial model such that the marketing apparatus makes sense. Um, because if you're spending $100 for one person to read a blog post, that probably doesn't make sense, right? Uh, but if you're spending $4 to get them to come in um, and, and read the blog post and they fall well within your MQL definition and you've proven that this, this person is an MQL and they've, it's worth the $4, then, then it's, it's totally the right, right, right strategy and it's gonna work. So uh, we do a bunch of work. There's a lot of interesting things in B2B you can do these days on um, getting a sense of who is the visitor right now. Um, and if they fall well within the, uh, category of companies that you would want them to be in. Mm -hmm. like for instance, for our own work, Caramel, uh, for our own marketing, we, we have this setup where if someone reads a blog post of ours and they fall within our um, target market, then we only count that as a successful 
click from the ads that got them to that blog post or that webinar and so on uh, without them really filling out a form at that point. They're just coming to the site. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, there's great companies like Clearbit doing interesting work there to, to expose that data. Um, so I think there is those abstractions. So that's number one. The second part is um, the environment of the ad itself is important. So if I have a mid-funnel ad alongside a bottom funnel ad in the same campaign, which generally is actually a good idea. Um, inherently, the mid-funnel ad, if you're like looking at it from a revenue perspective, it's going to hurt uh, the overall success of that campaign if you were judging the campaign off of lipstick, so turn on ad spend, or turn on pipeline, or, or whatever um, metric you're using. And so this is like the smart marketer problem, right? Like the smart marketer would keep that ad, the mid-funnel ad in there, but then a, a sort of, let's say, CMO or CEO doesn't understand the nuances of the environment of these ML-based ad sets might come in there and say, well, it's so obvious to me, you just have to cut these four ads that are underperforming and the, our return on ads and all of a sudden it's going to double. Um, I think those are the harder conversations to have because I have yeah. to give you all this context about how ML works and how the environments change the moment I put a different ad in there and they all work well together. And so what we try to do there is usually we try to rely on some form of uh, a multi-touch attribution model where so we can at least tell the story. Uh, yeah. This person came here first and they did that and then did this and they eventually became a customer. And so the full story should be there. Um, and we try to actually tell these stories over and over again. Try mm -hmm. to tell these like, call them chains of conversion stories. Mm -hmm. where we try to tell you, here's what happened. Here's all of that, the different sort of avenues people are converting, and these are the most popular pathways. Um, and so they tend to create the understanding within the organization that, oh, these are the types of things that we have to do well for a conversion journey to be optimal. And they get an understanding of, oh, yeah, that mid-funnel app that's in this campaign, it, it has a job. Uh, yeah. Why it's there. Well, I always use an example, um, again, past life, uh, they were really focusing on the decision maker who could actually, you know, write the check and make the sale. Um, our average sale was like 50 to $80,000 in that range. It grew while I was there. Um, but they were neglecting uh, an important part of it that there were stakeholders, there were non- uh, check signing non, uh, you know, decision makers, stakeholders, usually in it, you know, the admins who, who the executive would go and, and ask important questions. And if that low level, mid-level person was not sold on it, didn't have their questions answered, like there was no sale. And so, you know, by limiting, by not having, you know, that, that nurturing, not again, not understanding that customer journey and what happens in the middle, what happens when they're going through, we've sold them, we've caught their attention, but they're going through and they're doing their homework on the solution. Will it answer these specific scenarios? Will it meet these needs? You know, all has had to be done before it then goes to that decision maker phase and then putting the actual deal together. Uh, and, and so that was, that's why it, uh, you know, it's so important to understand, you know, what, what are the, the, the outcomes, what, and what, what is that understand that customer journey 
um, and, and that it's much more complex. You're right. I mean, attribution is a difficult thing when you're able to start uncovering how many of those touch points, who were the, the, the people that went into that, that journey, that decision, um, that it's, it's much more than that end sale. Like I was always frustrated as an evangelist where the salesperson be like, Oh, close this huge deal. Woo. I'm like, and we're, we're paraded around like for closing that big deal. I'm like, I just think like, what, what the hell? I, I, I did the first demo. I had a dozen conversations. It was evangelism marketing effort that led to that, you know, closing that deal in a record amount of time. But that salesperson who only was looking at it through that actual sales discussion that that last point that's why it's you you can't discount the rest of the journey yeah and it's an interesting problem space because one is that the attribution modeling is actually pretty hard at that point because there is multiple um, people involved on the companies and both your end and and the potential customers and and we we talk about it internally about like group-based attribution because most of attribution modeling science um, has been around individual attribution. Like what did you do and what clicks you made before you made the purchase? Because the overall sort of discipline comes from consumer marketing, but in B2B, there is like groups of people making decisions. And so you should be really thinking about it at a group level, right? How much spend went behind convincing this group of people that this is the decision to make. Uh, and so that's an interesting problem space. Uh, but the one that you also alluded to in the organizations is uh, there is like an inherent tension between all these teams, right? So the VP marketing might be uh, pretty upset about the VP of sales because they're, they think they're driving very good leads all the time and mm -hmm. VP of sales is not converting and vice versa. VP of sales is probably telling your marketing, you're driving actually pretty bad sales. My, my team is really like trying their best and doing their best trying to sell these things. And, you know, when I first started this company with my co-founders, I felt that that was a bad organizational hierarchy problem for a while. I, I felt that maybe the reason is that that, that person really should be one person. Uh, so I was looking at, like, examples of chief revenue officers that sort of mm -hmm. own these people. And, uh, they should sort of, like, care deeply about trying to make it so such that that argument doesn't exist. But as I've done this more... Um, I feel that that tension is important is an important tension um, because if you think about it and from another perspective, you want those teams to be quality assurance mechanisms for each other. And so the real question is how, how is the environment set up such that they can have those conversations? Is it uh, aggressive in nature or is it uh, feedback oriented and, um, structured in such a way that the marketing leader feels very comfortable saying like, hey, VP of sales, uh, can you walk me through every lead that we've generated for the last month and give me your very direct and succinct feedback on every single one and so then I can use those learnings to be better at targeting and vice versa, right? And, and so I think it's mostly a cultural problem versus a systemic problem. For a while, I thought it was a systemic problem. Like we should just organize companies differently and these fights that I keep entering seem dumb to me and so on. But now I feel that they're very important for the success of the company. And so, um, but if you don't have the perspective I have now, I can see how frustrating it can be. So it just happens to be like a, you know, we work with some teams where the, the communication is just so excellent between them.
right? And and they're so kind about it, and they're like, oh man, that one didn't work out, and uh, I wonder if they do X, Y, and Z, and, and and they get better so much faster in comparison to the ones that are just like antagonistic and saying, well, I just get bad leads from marketing. Well, it's always uh, you're kind of answering that my my last question, which is, uh, you know, what what advice would you give to companies that may have that disconnect between that creative vision and the actual company objectives i mean how do you bridge that gap yeah i think this is like a um a cultural question but the, the way i would think about it is this basically and this is how like we have people who are coming from like old ad industry uh companies who basically were in let's say brand marketing even they didn't care about the success of the creative production the way that we do but to sort of get them involved to understand the sort of core principle of what we're trying to do and get aligned on this is what we have to do, this is what we're supposed to do, why uh, we do it this way. Um, and you know, it takes us a while internally for us to do it. So I do think it's like a uh, push against the grain to sort of uh, make people think the way you do about the objectives, about the goals of the company and overall the goals of the process. Um, but in the moment people, it clicks for them, we, we did work very well. You know, now we've done this like for so many people where we brought them in from uh, agencies that didn't have this mindset, for instance, um, the performance mindset. And we put them into this process and they, they fall in love with it. They can see why it's an interesting craft in itself on how to tell the story in a way um, that converts people and for a long time, people used to think that, oh, we're like killing creativity or something like that. That was like a number one, it still is. I think when we hire art directors or creative directors, they're like scared because they think, well, you know, numbers and revenue that they just kill creativity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is like, if I box your creativity, trust me, like it's so much harder to actually be creative when I create these boundaries around it. So um, it actually is a form of creativity in itself. And so, uh, people recognize that very early on after they put into the system. They're like, well, we, we have like very clear boundaries for creativity, but the space in which we can be creative is actually vast um, and, and pretty fruitful. So it's a very similar process. You just have to like learn how to create some boundaries for yourself. And so um, I think a lot of it has to do with alignment on the goals and recognizing why we're doing them um, and committing to them together. But you know, it's different for, for culture. We do it a certain way, and um, it really depends on the, the leaders in that organization, what form of organizational culture they've committed to or have some most commonly handed to by previous regimes. And so then they have to think about changing the apparatus internally. But uh, for us, a lot of it is just positive reinforcement and uh, continually sort of reaffirming why we do it the way we do it. Mm -hmm. um, I literally write a, the essay on what we do every week. Um, I've been doing it for three and a half years. Uh, it's, it's not exactly the same topic, but I write a, an essay on management, our leadership, what, we tr what we're trying to, how we try to think about um, the craft that, that we're working on. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's extremely boring for some people who've been with us for a long time, but it tends to be uh, reinforcing of the culture we're trying to build. Uh, but that's my toolkit, right? So it really feels a very personal one, um, and I, I have people who do it very differently in, in, in my uh, community. Uh, so I, I, it's a hard one to like hand off to someone, but the core principle is how do you get people aligned, 
uh, there's plenty of different ways to do it. Uh, and half of the way you do it is, has to be authentic to you and how you yep. tell the story. No, I, I mean, this is something that we, we all, we all know. Um, but you know, you look at technology process and culture, uh, and the easiest thing to focus on is the technology and people, uh, like I, I consider myself technologist. I gravitate towards that. We're all excited about what's new, what's cool, how it can optimize, how it can change process. But the single most important thing is culture. You can have strong culture with outdated old technology and still find success. But the opposite is not true. If you have a weak culture, if you're not supporting the people side of things, you can have the latest, greatest technology, you'll fail without the cultural change and you know that side of it so um yeah it's uh it's a hard thing to go in and and uh and move change the culture but it's the thing that, that'll have the greatest impact on your success every time yeah i agree 100 yeah well well nima really appreciate your time uh thanks for uh, joining the show and, uh, and talking about uh, Paramount, of course, we'll have the link out to your to your website and to your profile. Anybody wants to find more information about you, uh, we'll point your direction for sure. So thanks a lot for participating in the Collab Talk podcast. Thanks for having me. This was great. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published weekly, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.